0: Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Make Language Great Again. I'm Tessa Lena. And today I am very happy to welcome Ron Tala, also known as Blondie Boy. Ron is a longtime friend who I absolutely love. He is also a Grammy winning and Billboard number one record producer, recording artist, drummer, and songwriter. He's credited on over 450 albums, 43 billion streams, and 11 number one Billboard hits. That is a lot of numbers. Too many numbers. That is true. So, do you want to talk about yourself in your own words?
1: Oh my. Well, I think you pretty much encapsulated the fact that other than music, I've probably had no life for the last uh, 35 years of doing this with such intensity and craziness. I mean, music is my language and the abstractions and the emotion and the, uh, the way that I can share with people how I feel and what I think is through the music that I help create with artists and through their message,
0: and by uh, adding
1: my uh, my two cents, shall we say, during those processes.
0: So do you think that it's easier for you to communicate with words or with sounds?
1: Well, words, irrespective of the language, force you into what I'm going to call a kind of collective arena. And those words frame the beginnings of kind of a pathway for people to interact to talk about things. I mean, for example, if if I use the word table, you will understand what the word table means and I will understand what the word table means. But if we think about it in our heads, uh, we might get two completely different images of a table. So what it actually is, is a general arena that gives us a general starting point from which to kind of build. For me, sound, which is all-encompassing and everywhere, and by the way, I remind everybody that um, you can close your eyes. You can close your mouth. You can do. What you cannot close your ears. Your ears from the day, from before you're born till the day you die, your ears are active and functioning nonstop. And what your ears receive in terms of information is so wide-scoping, so wide-reaching. Uh, words only themselves form a part of it. And I think maybe that's kind of why my attraction exists to sound in that. Music and sound are one and the same to me. When somebody speaks, I hear it very musically. I don't hear it just as almost a mechanical delivery of tones that together form words, that those words together form a sentence, and therefore they're supposed to have a a meaning. I kind of tend to respond more to sound, and sound is very synergistic. And words, when they're combined, can be viewed in that way. But imagine adding sound as another layer of that synergy. I think I've always gravitated to music as a very uh, noble and meaningful and contributory field uh, to the planet. As opposed to politics, for example, where words carry a lot of remarkable abstraction and uh, redirection. And it's not a sphere that, for me, is particularly attractive. In terms of humanism and in terms of, I don't know, the greater experience that everybody can have from sound and from words.
0: Politics and humanism, amazing combination. One
1: uh, one is, it's a very hard fought war, that war, and it'd be very interesting. Uh, those two concepts are historically, I think, existing. But the speed and the rapidity with which we exchange words and information today has made those two practices very, very separate. Historically, where humanism and politics would converge was around what I would call meaningful words, not just words for the sense of creating an impact or, I mean, cancel culture, gaslighting, trolling, doxing, all all, all these strategies that people employ are not built on humanism. They're built on uh, self-aggrandization. And I for one, prefer to work and spend my my life's work in an environment where whatever words are delivered and whatever music is attached to them and whatever sounds, therefore, are, are kind of sparked by that combination have a different nature of emotional impact on people. That's, I think, what's most important to me. I love looking into things and I love researching things and I love finding out about things. But doing that and the vetting of those truths and the vetting of the words uh, is becoming much harder. At least with music, what it is emotionally that exists is what it is emotionally that exists through the music. You either like it, you don't like it. That's okay. That's totally fine. But it doesn't require vitriol. It doesn't require discombobulation. It just requires participation and as simple as that.
0: What's on everybody's mind right now is obviously this crisis and reactions to that and the weirdness of life that we're all experiencing. So where are you? What are you doing? How are you handling it?
1: Well, my experience with COVID has been remarkably serene, remarkably quiet. And I'm in a very good circumstance, which has allowed me to, in some ways, look at this as nature saying, amigo, slow down, have a look at a bunch of stuff, stay home more, maybe attend to things that you haven't attended to or wouldn't have had time otherwise to attend to. And, you know, my family and everybody in in my circle are healthy. They've been okay. They haven't been struck by this. I have known some friends and some people who have perished again, insofar as the delivery of words, complicated to know if it is purely a function of COVID, if COVID is a facilitative or complicating feature of their passing, or just happens to have been a coincidental truth on this planet when they otherwise would have um, suffered the the, the calamities that they have. But I would say that if I listened to the sound of COVID, I would define it as mother nature kicking up a little bit of dust and saying you got to sit down and you got to pay attention to a few things that maybe you haven't paid attention to. And boy, have we been lambasted with words and opinions and perspectives and... uh, postings and, uh, again, vitriol and politics and so forth, when I'd say in my world, by and large, I've been quite productive, but I'd also say I've been quite serene and quite rested and in a good way. I trust the same for you.
0: Oh uh, Well, things have been very interesting in New York. I have to say that I don't necessarily enjoy the reaction to it because doesn't strike me as particularly benevolent or particularly intelligent in many ways and it is my opinion that We cannot deny the primal nature of the physical world because this is literally the only world we have. I do not necessarily like the cultural influences that are impacting the reaction and the stress that it is generating in people's hearts. So I am observing a lot of reactions to abuse. And I know that when people are stressed, which we are definitely helped into, then even the absolutely most brilliant human being tends to act not that intelligently. And I've done that myself in many circumstances and this is the, what I'm observing. So it is really, really bizarre to my senses.
1: A lot of words that are being thrown around, as you and I both know, by a lot of different people for a lot of different purposes. It is symptomatic of our current world that every voice that shares their opinion believes it has an opinion of value. And that is for me, complicating and distracting, whether it's done purposefully, whether it's done innocently. To me, there are certain voices that predominate irrespective of what industry or what area of expertise a person has. They've spent a fair amount of time developing their expertise. And this is also symptomatic, interestingly, in music and in sound. And in the, the, it's very parallel with the, the rest of the world in that the deluge of information and content and the sifting through it um, has made the pleasures of experience not as pleasurable anymore. It's also made anybody who has an important message to share much harder to find. And that to me is democratization of words, democratization of ideas and perspectives doesn't always hold the weight and it shouldn't always be the default approach, I think, with regards to many things but I probably am holding a somewhat antiquated view on what I call uh, the definition of value. Is there value just that everybody says whatever they want at whatever time and whatever way? Is there value that anybody who has a Digio2 system and a uh, computer laptop creates music? Those are very hard questions to answer. I know what my answer is in in my mind, but I'm not sure that... My answer even qualifies or is important to be heard in those regards. There are creative people and there's thoughtful and there's intelligent people who contribute meaningful, founded contributions, irrespective of the area. And then there are many who are not. And everybody, I guess, has 15 minutes of fame. And in this modern world, 15 minutes of fame is adding your own commentary to a YouTube video that you don't like.
0: I agree in a fundamental way and disagree in a formal way, because a lot of it depends on the definition of the word expertise. And uh, to me, uh, expertise is, a part of it is wisdom, and uh, unfortunately, it so happened that the cultural structure of our civilization, the way it has been for, for a number of centuries now, is that expertise does not necessarily mean knowledge or experience, it could be a formal certification by establishment, so to speak. So, for example, one of the problems that we have right now, and it's impacting everything and everybody in a horrible way, is that there's a difference between science as a method and science as an institutional structure that is fairly corrupt. And when those two are blurred together, we have a total mess. So when people use the word science, does it mean the actual objective, honest sacred method of analyzing reality and trying to draw conclusions based on the observations? Or does it mean that somebody with a title who got funding from a, I don't know, a pharma company, and then they did a study that did not really correlate to reality, but pleased the people from the pharma, a pharma company, but they're scientists as well, formally. So how do people distinguish? In reality, there's no way. So that complicates the discussion about expertise greatly. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Science is a great and very interesting domain and great example that you brought to the table because it is, in fact, very easy to see who are scientists and who are salesmen in that domain. And I say this because the way that science is essentially communicated to the world is through words, as are the the requests for funding, as are most of the, the logistical frameworks in science. But what is interesting about science in uh, comparison to any other field is that science is, by its own definition, a field built to disprove itself constantly. In other words, the uh, beliefs and the structures and the views and the existence of frameworks are constantly rehashed, reformulated when new science presents itself. And I think the idea that uh, science is an absolute is the same fallacy as words are an absolute, that truths are an absolute, that acting a certain way or the notion of particularly expertise is an absolute. Uh, I think I have known in my professional career An incredible number of people who I would define as erudites who never crafted their knowledge around pre-existing frameworks, but just had a natural, innate interest in things and built their knowledge base and their awareness and their abilities personally, individually, on their own timeline, in their own way. So the term Expertise both historically, I think, and even within modern currency is again, it's like the word nice. There's 132 definitions of the word nice, and English is an interpretive dance of a language. What is the word that I think the word run? The word run now has 646 meanings. There is no other language on the planet that is less scientific at its core. Than the English language, and more built on what I call an interpretive dance. And for me, this is a very important feature of how do I define and how do I frame words that are delivered to me in the English language. So to give, to give. So I, I don't know how many of your listeners, for example, speak French, but my mother is French from france i studied in the south of france uh as a teenager and lived there so i i'm very fortunate i speak french fluently but french is an example of a language that is scientific in terms of its precision it is not an interpretive dance a word or a collection of words refers very specifically to very specific circumstances under very specific conditions that's why historically from from my understanding uh International diplomacy was always done in French. It was always using the French language because of its virtual scientific precision, which is not to say that it's not evolutionary. It's just like science. It's evolutionary. But the, the, the power of words and the power of agreements and the power of what does the word expertise mean? In the English language, it means the same thing as nice or run or set, or go, or strike, or take—all of which have literally a hundred and fifty, or two hundred, or two hundred and fifty meanings each one. So it's very contextual, and you are very correct, Tessa, that when an environment, as is the as is the one in the English language, presents words and presents um, justifications for actions built around those words, like expertise of this person or expertise of that um, further definitions are required because unlike other languages the English language is by and large a massive extraordinary I think quite beautiful but yet quite abstract interpretive dance and and I um what a person chooses to call themselves in the English language is always to be taken with a grain of salt because there's many other things that require its qualification and many other things, both scholastic and non-scholastic, both humanist and experiential and, and so many things. And I think at the end of the day, it's why the English language has become so easily weaponized as compared to some other languages.
0: Well, weaponization of language is... Well, it's obviously a topic that interests me greatly and I think that um, whether it became more evident or whether it's happening a lot more right now, but specifically here, me being in the States coming from another culture, I think the language is being weaponized significantly more than before or maybe it's just a phase in history or maybe it's because of the internet and everybody's talking and everybody's yelling at each other, but... What I'm seeing uh, in social trends that I personally despise is that they use specifically changing the meanings of the words or rather substituting the underlying concepts. So the words that mean very good things like public good or community values. But if there's a corporation or a politician, they continue using those words as if they still meant the same thing, but then in reality they mean something entirely different. And I have an example from my old childhood. For example, the Soviet culture, being from Moscow, this is a culture I'm familiar with, and by the time I was around it was very mild, but the technique was still there, where everywhere there were posters of what today would be essential workers, right? There would be workers and farmers... And it was supposed to be the most free country in the world, everything for the people. And all those slogans were wonderful. So if you were just to judge the reality by the slogans, it would be a perfect world, heaven and earth. But in reality, people were impoverished. The bureaucrats were awful. the cashier at the store would yell at you. But the slogans were wonderful. And even if we go and look back at history at 1917 in, in Russia, where... The slogans that the Bolsheviks were using were land to the people, uh, you know, factory to the workers, you know, bread to the farmers and all those things. The slogans were beautiful. It had nothing to do with reality because in reality, the leaders of the Bolsheviks were stuffing their fat faces on everything while everybody else was starving, starving.
1: But well, slogans are aggregate weapons. It, it is it is absolutely, without exception, historically that that I think we could collectively, you and I, could say that a slogan is an aggregate weapon. But I had been in preparation for our conversation today. I'd been thinking about some very important, even remarkably basic things, and one of the things that came to mind was that for most people, and I include myself in that. I mean, words really define who we are. So when a person calls themselves an officer or a dentist or a lover or a drummer, those words in particular tend to carry a weight because of this collective arena that we all find ourselves in and that we all have this vision, this interpretation, sometimes great misinterpretation, but nonetheless, it's an interpretation of what those words are and what they reflect. And when you talk about the definition of yourself, when we say I'm an officer, I'm a dentist, I'm a lover, I'm a drummer, when you use words like that, what you are trying to do is you are trying to craft space around yourself to which You have a control and to, by extension then, an ability to allow who you want to allow in to that circle of space, specifically those who accept that definition of who you are. I've always believed, and I've told you this as well, Tessa, in many conversations, that I've always believed people are far more than this delimiting terminology or delineating terminology of the naming of who they are. And I think when people enter into a conversation, I mean, what, what is a conversation? A conversation is a very uh, peculiar thing itself. It's two people sitting in kind of a generalized arena that if they are open to discussion, start to open smaller and closer arenas. But when you think about it, I have never viewed a human being as simply a feature or a function of their words. I've always viewed human beings much more so as a feature or function of their actions. Words tend to be either truthful reflections of their actions or complete bullshittery relative to their actions. It's the action that defines but it's the words that seem to be like the doorknob to enter, uh, that you twist, to somehow enter into this collective arena. And it's very interesting to me because I, I remember uh, not long ago having this uh, I- environment where I'm, I'm just, for example, I was seeing this girl for a short period of time. And then you start to say, okay, well, what's, how do you present this person to another person? What is the definition of around which you present them is this your girlfriend is this a friend is this a partner is this a concubine is it what is this and i settled on the fact that rather than my using my definition i'd rather use the most neutral definition i possibly can of them when i present them to somebody new and that is the social custom of using their name and most people want additional definitions, and that is actually not my place, I believe, to make. So I suspect in some way this kind of the thing we're talking about right now lives directly in the he-she-they discussions that also exist today very, very uh, frequently, and that the, the the definitions that are applied to people, I mean, I've always believed people are so much more than the limitations of the words used to define them. And I think if most of us probably know in life these experiences where we are discovering people through their words and they surprise us. And I mean, I've had many experiences where I'm at a party And there's lots of people talking about lots of things and so on. And then there's this one or two people who say very, 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 very little all night. But you can see they're very attentive. You can see that they're listening, that they're inquisitive, that they're intrigued. And then they say something in one or two sentences that is so cataclysmically extraordinary that they've synergized and kind of pushed away the meaninglessness of the definitions of these diminutive words about this person or that, and kind of brought forth a, a kind of a, a glory and a beauty and a truth that supersedes definition.
0: Do you have an example of that?
1: Uh, I'm just thinking particularly about this one experience that I had, must be close to 10 years ago now, where I was uh, literally, I'd met for the first time, it was a friend of uh, my mother's. And it was, so there were colleagues of my mother. My mother's a university professor and it was a party that she was put on. And there were a bunch of different colleagues. And we were discussing, the, the thematic that we were discussing was, when a lion uh, kills its prey, is that a violent act, right? And we started to, of course, do the things that everybody does where you discuss, you know, violence and what what is the definition of violence and is the weight of the, the pejorative side of that word. And can you ascribe uh, humanist perspectives to uh, survival mechanics of animals who don't read or write and therefore don't use words and then it becomes a, a reflection of us but it a reflection of them and it's it's just and one of the one of the um my mother's colleagues basically was sitting there and it, w- it was very interesting because i could see that they were listening very attentively that they they cared about this discussion and that they were very open to it because it I suspect it had uh, kind of a bearing on something that they were, in fact, discussing in one of their classes with some of their their students at the time. And the the, the person just basically contributed very, very minimally, but said uh, something that I will never, ever forget for the rest of my life. And we were using the notion of violence in kind of a almost a politicized uh, way and using the notion of the term violence as a external, uh, visible to the world kind of a thing. And then they said something and they said, said, you know, listen, I've I've been writing a book recently had nothing to do with the discussion of violence. And and then they said something. They said, you know, I'm quite convinced that my writing a book, that writing a book Is in itself a violent act. And that just blew my mind because it turned what essentially was almost a dogma like a dogmatism about the way certain individuals were viewing violence and the horror and the blood spatter and the absoluteness of it and into. Something inwardly facing and something that this person transformed it into something inwardly facing and suggesting that violence has self-inflicted truths that actually can yield remarkable and beautiful things. And it was it was an an experience that I, I, I know I will never forget because the subject matter is odd. In general, talking about, you know, I've never had a discussion with anybody else about uh, when a lion attacks uh, its prey, is that a violent act? But the, the the beauty that came out of that moment for me was extremely revelatory and particularly for me as somebody who works in music. Because the inward inclination of artists and the, the fragility of exposing truths and the processes that they must go through for that are... Remarkable and extraordinary, and that I've worked with so many of them, and that even my processes, I had never envisioned in that way, that I needed those features, and I needed to accept those features as being pass-throughs to beauty, not just pass-throughs to horror. And that was, for me, one of the most revelatory, conversational experiences of my life, Relating specifically to one word and the broadness rather than the diminishment of what it should actually mean. And that goes part and parcel with everything we've been talking about now about the English language. That when you talk about words like expertise, it's an interpretive dance. It's not an absolute. Just like science is not an absolute. Just like nothing really is an absolute. We grow, we learn and we grow truths from those 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 environments. But truths are evolutionary. They're, they're evolutionary, just like language is evolutionary, just like law is evolutionary, just like social constructs are evolutionary. This is it's living, it's breathing, it's it's beautiful and complex and irrational sometimes. But as you know, Tessa, as we've spoken about, you know, what is what is my singular goal? In, in as a producer as a record producer it's to capture perfect imperfection and and how does one define that again it's just a usage of words but actions reveal it and the action of writing a book and its definition to somebody as a violent act is was was amazingly eye-opening same for
0: me. This provides for an interesting segue uh, for something that I was actually not going to talk about. I just didn't think about it. And now I do want to talk about this. So when you mentioned artistry and the inwardly quality, and then what it brought to my mind is kind of the social impact and social responsibility. And in order to explain what I mean, let me tell you like my personal perspective. So I am far more inclined toward philosophy and kind of almost escaping the direct language because direct language is, well, for one, it really has to limit reality, but also then you have to deal with the consequences in a way and you may sound more primitive than uh, you are on the inside. But then recently I've been really changing not, my overall look and not my overall opinion, but kind of the application aspect of it, because uh, I believe that currently we are in a very important historical phase that might not be different from any other invasion of feudal quality that humanity has dealt with cent- uh, with for centuries. But it has a very concrete and potentially devastating impact on you know, my life and the lives of many people. And by that, I mean the trend toward the techno-totalitarian fascist state of pretty much the entire world. And I am freaking out about it. Not freaking out with fear, but freaking out with alertness, because my senses are screaming, and I think this is what's happening. And I think that uh, keeping the abstract interface is almost... uh, I don't want to use the word irresponsible because everything is internal and everybody is different, but almost ineffective, because when somebody is going at you with a knife, uh, yes, you can philosophize, but the chances you'll end up dead. So here I feel we're in a moment where the existential threat is massive. and. I am personally moving from my kingdom of abstraction and poetry, which I still love and I still live in that kingdom, but I'm moving significantly toward the realm of very direct language and kind of calling a spade a spade, because I think it's almost a curse of the intellectual class to avoid direct language out of fear of sounding vulgar, out of fear of being judged by your peers. And I have gone through an evolution where I went from a very abstract person who is always kind of weaving the words in a way that it is purely abstract and sensory and does not describe reality directly, towards being a person who feels the need to describe the reality directly and even take a chance of... Like, maybe I will change my mind later, maybe I won't, maybe, you know, whatever the opinion is right now or tomorrow, I feel that it is my social responsibility as an artist and as a human being to not mince the words too much. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: I, I understand about concretization. That's, that's If I'm going to re- reduce, if I could, um, what you're sharing with me, I would reduce it to what I call concretization. And concretization is interestingly also a central, central feature of what it is that I do professionally. In other words, there is within the context of art and uh, musicians and songwriting and tones and sounds and everything. uh, One thing that there's never a shortage of is ideas. So ideas are rampant ideas are everywhere. And one of my roles is to take the philosophical, if you will, and to concretize it. And in my case, being that I work in uh, commercial uh, fields uh, to allow for something to be concretized so that people can in fact sell it. In other words, that it has what one might call commercial value, whatever the heck that is in terms of a definition. Uh, If you understand a It's the best way I can explain what my role is. Concretization, interestingly, is benchmarked off of action. So people can speak endlessly about uh, philosophies. They can also speak endlessly in the application and the utilization of scientific terminology that is supposed to be, as you would say, a spade is a spade. But at the end of the day, the only thing that I would say that is a true reflection of what Those words stand for is the actions upon which uh, they're either founded or that they enable. And in my world, those actions are about physically contributing and crafting towards a final product that has sound imagery what i call perfect imperfection it has linguistic value it has poetry it has many of those features all kind of uh, in one big filet pastry uh, all kind of shoved together the the power of concretization i believe does not exist without the precursor of concept so my view is that as much as a word itself has an intended purpose, more or less, even if it has 132 definitions. But nonetheless, it has an intended purpose behind it. The fact that purpose exists doesn't mean that the result is garnered. And for me, that's always much more reflected through the action and what that action actually yields, uh, sometimes it yields good results. Sometimes it does not. Sometimes it's just like sometimes people get uh, misinterpreted when they say things. Sometimes they don't. Um, there's um, there's an interesting uh, German philosopher called uh, Schopenhauer, who I subscribe to a lot of what he speaks about and what he says. But one of the things that I find the most interesting is, and this is um, uh, a philosophy that I think is applicable both in terms of when you discuss linguistic or language specifics, just like it is to discuss huge social paradigms or social movements. And he basically said that, I'll just encapsulate the, uh, the expression, it's basically, first, things are ridiculed. Secondly, they are intensely opposed. Thirdly, they are considered as self-evident. And when you talk about that process And when you talk about that agglomeration of perspective relative to things, the power for me of what Schopenhauer is saying is in the concept. In other words, in music, we sometimes talk about what we we call the underlying composition. So when you discuss copyright, when you discuss who owns a song, you often discuss things that relate to an underlying composition. That's the concretization of something. Because in copyright law, so everybody who doesn't know that that uh, they it be clear on this, you cannot copyright an idea. You can only copyright its concretization. So the fact that words offer a form or a pathway of concretization for what otherwise are uh, philosophies or ideas or concepts is by definition, an understandable and necessary truth. But it doesn't mean that those words are in their absolute what it is that they are defining. And so the example I just gave with regards to the law is a perfect example of that because all laws are evolutionary. And in fact, laws follow concept. They don't precede concept. So in, in human uh, existence, uh, you have radicals who bring attention to a particular perspective uh, or a particular 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 uh, view or, or uh, philosophy or concept that is not being attended to, to their satisfaction, then you eventually have that brought to the masses and they ridicule it. And then eventually a group of lawyers who are frequently moderates, or you can call them politicians, you can call them whatever you want, because as we all know, many politicians have a history in law in their past, perspective, they then formalize and legislate what otherwise was a concept. So some of those that we all know about that are the most famous are uh, child labor laws. And uh, it takes for a concept for somebody to say, hey, that a, a child is working in a mine or working as a slave. That's just not right. So in our society, I would like to change that. That's a conceptual That's a conceptual refocusing from what was before considered, as I had said, and as uh, had said, as a self-evident truth. So that's a change. And the change is a concretization. And that concretization is a process. But words are themselves evolutionary. Everything a word is attached to is by itself a- a- essentially evolutionary. So I appreciate the notion of calling a spade a spade. I do. I am, if anybody has ever seen me on a panel discussion or when I do um, talk at, at different environments, I am that guy that shit disturbs. And I like shit disturbing because I like people to discuss core conceptual truths through the mechanics of the language that they have available to them. But language is evolutionary. And the way that people describe and the definitions that people apply to the words they used for those descriptions are constantly evolving. Language is math. Math does not tell you anything about anything, only about its relation to something else. Math talks about the space between things not the things themselves. It it talks about nothingness. And uh, one of the greatest math evolutions historically is the definition of zero. And that is not math didn't start out having a zero. It was an evolutionary conceptual truth because it framed the point that math is about the space between things, not about the thing. And That is what language does. Language, when I use the word apple, you have your vision of that. And I have my vision of that. We probably, you might be looking at a Macintosh apple and I might be thinking about a golden delicious apple. But we talk about an apple. It's a framework. It's not an absolute truth. And for me, there's complexity in that. There's complication in that. But at the same time, there's beauty in it. And so I have found that in the same way that you're not going to use the same words to speak with a six-year-old as you are with a cabinet minister.
0: You mean you would use more complex words when you speak with a six-year-old?
1: Well, you would probably not necessarily use, you might not use less, you might just use different words because their frame of reference in the usage of this of words is limited. They haven't had the time to acquire new interpretive dances with words to get a bigger, uh, maybe the uh, best way to explain maybe is to expand the arena in which they find themselves.
0: I was making a joke. the The meaning of that was that a six year old is smarter than a cabinet minister. Uh,
1: uh, you know what? In many cases, and in my experience, I would actually concur. <laughs> With, with your conclusion but what what I'm what I'm more saying is that, that there's a beauty and a weight to words not being concrete but being by their definition expressions of mathematical relations and like anything to deepen to know yourself more to be in closer contact with the your ability to share with others the feelings that you have the you can call them truths the truths that you that you have the experiences that you have requires in some degree that they also have had some frameworks, maybe not the same experiences, but some frameworks from which to draw so that they can in fact understand what you're saying. But it's all for me, an interpretive dance. And I, maybe unlike your, yourself, Tessa, I actually like that. I like that there's a requirement of me to interpret rather than to absolutize an exchange. And that means that I contribute to its concretization, But I don't contribute alone. It requires multiple people. And, you know, I mean, speak to somebody who who edits the Oxford Dictionary or, I mean, their life must be crazy. I know the next edition of the Oxford Dictionary is supposed to come out in, uh, I think, in in 2023 or 2024. And that's how I I came to understand that this term, the word run, has 646 meanings. It requires about 60,000 lines of explanation. That's insane. Never has that existed before in the past, but evolutionaries and creatives finding unique ways to concretize things has made it so that this poor fellow working at Oxford has to script out 60,000 lines of information to validate and formulate formulate the way the word, a three letter word called run, (laughs) is utilized. So I I fall in, you know, one category of groups. It's probably because I'm, you know, I work in the creative arts and because I see things in a certain way. I'm definitely not a a lawyer. I I see confrontational language for what it is, that it creates a kind of a balance and a strategery, if you will, in environments, but I don't see that as necessarily unilateral. And this is coming from somebody who speaks French, which is probably interestingly interestingly, the the language that is the most scientific in its precision and at the same time the culture and the environment that has been breeded by that that ascertains the most nebulous amazing unique creativity and art in terms of concretization that has ever been so i don't i don't know i don't have answers to this i just like that i like talking people and i like discussing and i like hearing what they have to say because to me that in and of itself is a form of perfect imperfection and it echoes kind of truths of my life
0: uh thank you i would like to bring actually a different dimension to that and almost debate you although again i agree on some of the sensory aspect of it but i think that while it is true that language is a relative thing and it only exists in a community as a convention that I think that is a brilliant observation. But at the same time, there's a certain tendency. And I do think that a Western education, especially a very good Western education, does a trick to the brain where it messes with human senses in a way that everything becomes too abstract. So the reality of human life is is that if somebody, I don't know, jumps out of your computer and tries to bite off your nose, that is going to be a physical fact. And then if it happens to a person, then the person will be without a nose, and that's going to be a fact. So when there's too much abstraction, so if there's danger, for example, as bringing it back to the current situation, which I think, like, we're looking at great danger, and uh, there is about a million ways of describing it in a very abstract, in a very palatable way. We can fragment it and slice it and dice it and make it a scientific presentation and explain why it is desirable for everybody to carry a million senses in their bodies and be surveilled. And there's definitely a million bureaucratic angles. However, there's also a very, very concrete physical reality in the physical world that if we go there, probably there's going to be great pain, great suffering, and the joy of life will be lost. So, when it comes to very concrete situations like that, where there's a possibility of physical harm, for example, or where there's a possibility of disease, then abstract thinking almost does a disservice because typically what happens in society is that the people who are impacted the least or the last, they do not tend to have a sensory ability to go in the realm of the concrete. And they distract themselves with the realm of the abstract for as long as they can until the moment when they're about to die physically. And because I came from that culture i understand how that culture works from the inside i almost even though i am criticizing that mindset i also cannot fully criticize it because this is how I was raised myself. I understand the sensory framework. It's almost a defective framework in a sense that like it does not give the person the entire ability to perceive the 360 degrees. But I am discovering that right now it is the exact abstract thinking that the modern man is so proud of comparing to the so-called primitive cultures, right? And this is the exact sensory factor that can murder us and can murder the entire civilization. And by murdering it, it's not going to be abstract, it's going to be a lot of people experiencing physical pain, death, suffering, joyless life. And uh, that is very concrete. So I think that in these kind of situations, like in situations where, I don't know, Russia in 1917 or Nazi Germany in late 30s or early 40s, there are situations when the use of language becomes critical in that sense, where escapism, while it's a very pleasant thing and I'm not against escapism as an individual experience and ultimately everybody decides for themselves how they word things and how they communicate things but there's a certain aspect of responsibility not as a moralizing tale but as a practical method like for example if there is a truck moving onto you you may you have the right to pretend that it's not happening the full right Or like you or anybody I, I, I mean abstract you But regardless of the linguistic exercises, if you don't move, it's going to hit you. So my recent discovery on a sensory level and on the linguistic level is that certain things are just practical. And escaping into the language of, okay, I can talk about a serial killer and I can actually look at it from the perspective of the trauma that he experienced and maybe his pure emotions, maybe he really loves his kitten, like really genuinely loves his kitten and he's a good person to that kitten, but at the same time he murdered 50 people, right? So nuance is absolutely important on a sensory level, but I think there's also a situation in which there has to be a balance where nuance becomes almost masturbatory, versus practical description. And they're not in conflict in theory, but I'm talking about a very, very concrete emotional choice. I don't know if this makes sense and where your opinions lie in that framework.
1: By and large, I don't think what you just said and what I said previous is in Discord. In fact, I think they're virtually in direct accord and I'll explain to you why. So you brought a very interesting example and I want to use that example to kind of frame the way that I think about what it is you're talking about. You brought the example of if there's a car dri- if there's a truck driving down the road and you're on the road and the truck is going to hit you. There is a uh, an unfettered truth to that actuality. There's a almost a uh, that actionable reality could be changed by somebody linguistically saying move or get out of the way. However, if you happen to be in a country where you don't speak the language and somebody goes la or it's the That's not going to have any meaning to you. And the reason it's not going to have any meaning to you is because you haven't been offered a framework within which somebody else can share that meaning with you. And so the pragmatism of an action, like a truck running into somebody, and the reality of that as it is, is irrespective of language. It is not framed as a feature from my perspective, it's not framed as a feature of language, but it is something for sure where language not only can intercede but can have very specific impact on given the right circumstances. That's the uh, interpretive dance, that's the contextual. that's um, when somebody will have, for example, studied that local language in order to hear and respond to that truth that somebody is trying to tell them be careful. There's a truck coming to hit you. The fact that then somebody describes afterwards in their own words, a truck hit a guy, doesn't give enough context. It's the same thing as saying the following. Uh, somebody, somebody shared this exercise with me. Uh, oh, man, I can't remember. A whole bunch of years ago. They're like, um, OK. So they started it out something like this. They started to say yellow car and you get an image of a yellow car. Then they said, yellow car in the countryside. Get an image of a yellow car in the countryside. Then they said, yellow car in the countryside in, in, I don't know, back road of Yosemite. And you get an idea of that. And then they say, person fighting uh, with his wife in this yellow car in this uh, field in Yosemite. And what this particular exercise that this person put me through it was a it was a group of us was just an interesting uh, discussion was that if you keep bowing out like a like a camera you keep bowing back and back and back and seeing the bigger grander picture of everything the nature from which you use words and particularly how you define what it is that exists in front of you which is actually how your relationship is in existence to that thing becomes endlessly different in particular as to any third party listening to you describe it so the notion of a fact in existence uh, such as a truck hitting a guy is it precludes language it doesn't feature language as its core to the existence of that act. Language frames it for others to participate, whether they're there at the moment or whether they're not. And for me, that still is predicated on a concept that everybody having the discussion is in the same arena, which is an artificialization because there's many arenas that are offered to discuss those truths. Right? We're having that discussion. If a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does it fall? That's what this becomes kind of a discussion about. And does it make a sound is what I mean. Uh, Right? That's that's the discussion. So there's scientific perspectives. There's humanist perspectives. There's religious perspectives. There's philosophical perspectives. There's all these perspectives. But at the end of the day, the communication of the perspectives, whatever they are, in whatever words used, still require the action of the tree to fall in a forest. Whether it does or it doesn't, that action exists before the words, not the other way around. And for me, that is a clarifier about concretization. And it's a clarifier for me about why the prioritization, uh, right? Is it particle or is it wave? Uh, That is me describing something that has already occurred. That is not me for uh, advance saying something that is about to occur. And the notion of language as a feature of distinguishing truths is entirely unilateral. And I think maybe that's where you and I also agree because language is at its core very, very hard to concretize. It is what we ascribe to it. If I go, nigli am I saying, uh, and I put a, a, a glass that is uh, half full in front of you, what am I saying? Am I saying the glass is half full? Am I saying, would you like some water? Am I saying, look at the brilliance of this beautiful glass? What am I saying? Even if you have a universal translator next to you, that is formulated based on pre-existing conditions. And those conditions are actions that have existed. It's why language came after what we believe to be the existence of humans on this planet, not before. And if you have a religious view, you believe that words would have come before. You would believe that biblical truths crafted the outgrowth that then became our universe. All of this is dependent entirely on perspective and on what I consider mostly uh, a unilateral embracing your own truths when you're shoved into an arena you come with that that's what you that's that's in your backpack and then you have to kind of unfurl it and find the the connection points to concretize things between yourself and the other person who has to unfurl their truth as well
0: <laughs> you're pretty solidly taking the concretization in the realm of abstraction
1: <laughs> well it, it, it's it's what, what can I tell you these are these are things it's it's my truth I mean I have to deal with artists on a daily basis who try to frame their truths in extremely unique, extremely special ways that at the end of the day, I can come kind of close to in my interpretation, hopefully, but it's really all about the action. It's really all about the action that creates the need for these words, which then elicits another action and finally creates a concretization. This is is my universe. And I admit, I enjoy it. Uh, I I enjoy having conversations with people about anything. I am very interested in virtually everything. And in particular, in things that I know nothing about, which are humongous amounts of things that I know nothing about. And I'm just interested because those things, those facts, those realities, if you want to call them that, are additive to me. They expand my arena and I don't charge a ticket price for anybody to come into my arena. I just want anybody to come into my arena because I find it fascinating and I find that there exists truths in everybody and nobody is the owner of a truth. They're an owner of their truth. And through that, truths get defined and built and evolved and transmogrified It's all math.
0: I would like to bring you back to the concrete, though. And uh, while truth is not absolute in many ways, but if the truck hit the guy and the guy is dead, that becomes the truth. And uh, the guy is dead. he's no longer there. So that is as true as it gets. And uh, if he had a dream, if he wanted to do anything, if he wanted to become somebody, to marry somebody, to go someplace he is no longer capable of doing that in this specific place and time and that becomes pretty true so there comes a moment when abstraction is no longer abstract which again i'm going to tell you actually a different story entirely different but tying back into this when i was probably in my teens i was in an extremely intellectual what americans would call artsy environment that was all my friends and one of the things that I like to do because I guess even back then I was a peasant at heart and I did not like too masturbatory of abstraction, is I would like to pretend and play a role of saying things that were extremely vulgar in the middle of extremely poetic speeches. And it brought me great pleasure because it kind of balanced the going into the clouds of abstraction with the, I don't know, concrete sensory foundation of things in real life. But I guess what I'm trying to say is is that the concrete has a very specific value and to my senses. While I do agree on many levels with uh, uh, what you're saying, and as you know, we agree on a lot of things and I admire you deeply, but I do think that the concrete plays a larger role in human life than what a Western education and particularly a lot of brilliant Western minds like to believe, because at a certain point... If a truck hit a guy, the guy's dead. That's it. It doesn't matter if he had a PhD in philosophy, he's dead. If he's dead, he's dead. I agree.
1: I, under, I fully understand and respect what you're, what you're saying 100%. The thing is that there are people who don't. And for me, I find the reasons for why they wouldn't intriguing. And I, I personally don't. I used to be in, in, in my uh, youthier youth year youth. Uh, a very dismissive person of many different perspectives of many different things because I couldn't see the light of them in, in uh, from the framework that I believed with regards to many different things, whether it was religious perspective, whether it was uh, a technical uh, acumen, whether it was a way to define certain things within music, but whatever it was. I found myself learning over the years that... The framework that I apply to what I believe to be the case is my framework. It is applicable to me. It facilitates and helps me. And it certainly helps me get into uh, arenas with third parties who I don't know and find common ground for sure. But it doesn't mean that I define that as a truth. I define it as a pathway. Now, how you choose to use that, that's, it's, uh, it's completely um, up to every individual. If somebody gets hit by a truck and they die by the definition of, by our current uh, humanist definition of uh, life and death, right, uh, then I will accept that person's perspective on it. Uh, however, there's many people, for example, who don't accept the definition of life as uh, being self-aware. Because that's the current, uh, modern, at least the most recent legal definition of life is something that is self-aware. There's lots of people who think there's tremendous life and energies in rocks. Rocks are not self-aware.
0: How do you know that they're not self-aware?
1: Exactly. And that's kind of my point. That by the legal definition, because it's undertaken by certain um, parameters that are fulfilled to the, the the perspective of certain individuals who have managed, I think, specifically to legislate it for the benefit of money, for the benefit of many different things, that doesn't mean that that is a truth. And so it goes back to that perspective that there's a lot of people who believe that when you die, you immediately are part of something else that's living. So you don't die. You just you, you change. And I just say this because for me... It's still interesting, irrespective of everything that we've discussed, because I'm in agreement with you on on most things. I think we're actually, by and large, in agreement. Predicated to the language is still required the action of a, a truck ramming into a guy. And that action predates the need for the language to describe that action. And for me, that's kind of the thematic strength or the thematic foundation, I would say, upon which I construct most of my views with these things. I love language. Lord knows anybody who knows me well knows I use it endlessly. I use it with great energy and I use it with great zest and I love language. But I've never believed that the way that I express myself is necessarily going to communicate everything that I believe or that I feel sufficiently or maybe even fragmentally properly. It is my quest in life. To find truth in whatever way I can. And I try, I use words to maybe get me closer if I can. But I never believe that they reflect the truth. They reflect a truth. Not the truth. And maybe uh, maybe that's why I can still see beauty in language in some ways. Because it's unpredictable. And it's going to become something else. You know, by the time I die, hopefully not hit by a truck uh, by the time I die, I suspect many of the words and many of the usages and many of the things that I've uh, I- evolved in terms of my limited understanding with things will themselves have evolved so far beyond my own perspective at that point. And for me, that's a happy place. I, I embrace the unknown. The more unknown that exists, the happier a camper I am. The more known that exists, the less a happy camper I am. I like the unknown. It, it it feeds me. It supports me. It gives me great reason to live every day because I don't know what's going to happen to Mark. I get stressed out like anybody else. I get worried. I have, you know, issues in my life. And f- Of course, I'm just like every other human being. But maybe I'm a little different in the sense that the unknown, I feel more security in than I do the known. And um, whether that is a good place or a bad place, whether that is reflective of an entire society that is misinformed, misguided, or an entire society that is healthier because of it, I don't know. I just know that it applies to me. And it's a pathway that has helped me in many arenas. And I think at the end of the day, if I can find myself in many arenas, I will have lived a, a, a meaningful life. That's all I can kind of hope
0: for myself. Uh, You know what I'm curious about? I'm curious about your process of translation. When you talk to a human being with a different perspective, a different uh, sensory perspective, a different intellectual perspective, and... uh, For whatever reason, it is extremely important to you to convey your message. It could be a business context or like any context in which it's really important to convey what you're trying to say and to build the bridges. Do you have a process of translation? Do you use your instincts? Do you have a method? How do you do that? Um, I
1: don't have what I would call an algorithm that I apply. Uh, the only algorithm—it's not an algorithm. It's just—it's a process, and that process is actually a very simple one. That process is never to deny the contribution to that environment to try to, you know, uh, raise, let's say, the uh, communication profile. Never to deny the perspective or the truths that I have um, built or what I'm going to call these pathways into this arena that I, to never deny them. In other words, that. If I'm going to be in a, in an arena with somebody, somebody who I don't know, the best thing I could possibly do is to be open to what it is they're communicating and similarly to offer the truthiest notion of who I am to them as well. And not to I mean I can easily if you have a control of language, you can manipulate the living crap out of people right and left. Lord knows all you have to do is turn on social media. Or the television right now, and you can (laughs) see this in action at its finest. I choose not to use that approach. I choose the approach of basically opening uh, my, my shirt and saying, here, this is who I am. This is what this is about. This is my perspective. Share with me yours. Hopefully, we can find a great middle ground to build off of. Now, sometimes it doesn't happen. I don't have I don't have a, a hundred uh, percent success ratio. Not at all. But it is a perspective that I've learned because I'd say I come from a, a, a fairly well educated uh, Jewish background where growth and education are extremely, extremely central to the tenets in which I was manufactured. Which means. That anything that I do, if my goal is to grow and to, um, uh, to study and to learn and to aggrandize the, the, the me, the, the who I am, I must broach those with that goal in mind. And so sealing off pathways has never been, in my mind, a way to do that. Open pathways is a way to do that. Sometimes you suffer because of them. Sometimes you get hurt. Sometimes many things. Nonetheless, That is the approach that I have uh, followed and it has led me to pretty good results by and large professionally because I don't go in with unrealistic expectations. I don't go in with a plan to try to manhandle or manipulate an environment, I go in with a plan that I hope is viewed in a way as a win-win because that's the way I framed it in my perspective. Then you start discussing and maybe it's not understood to be that way. And then you have to corral and organize and negotiate and figure things out. But if you go in with the right mindset, I generally speaking, you come out with some kind of a result. That's been my experience. And, and my mindset is what I just described. It's, uh, like I said, if I'm trying to negotiate with a six-year-old to have them finish their dinner, I've got to use different te- techniques than to negotiate with somebody at a, you know, at a conference table for uh, an aggrandization of an artist who I really care about, who I think their music is amazing, and I would wish nothing but success for I've got to use different approaches, different perspectives, but I don't use anything artificially. I can only use what I know. And that is a lot of what I know is based on what people have shared with me, not just my own research. And, and that, that's what I do.
0: And I have to say that your authenticity and your even-headedness are some of the things that really make me like you, because I've known you for many years. And all those years, you've been entirely authentic and unique in your approach, because in this world... There's a lot of hustling and there's a lot of cutting corners, and you're one of the very few people who don't do that, which is admirable.
1: Truthfully, like I honestly, honestly, and I love you for saying that, and I thank you for that. It doesn't always work. I'm the first one to say that uh, in terms of success, but I care more about coming home and looking at myself in the mirror and saying, you know what, you did a righteous job, You, you offered the truth, you were the best you could be in that environment. It's not always meant to uh, work, it's not always meant to be, but uh, being authentic, I would hope that the people who I have under my umbrella as I continue moving forward on this planet really are that. I, I don't need yes people around me. I've never needed yes people. I need people who contribute. And that's because I have a hunger. I have a hunger for knowledge and I have a hunger for, for, for people. And um, it doesn't mean I doesn't mean I trust everybody. It doesn't mean that I w- end up leaving a, a meeting, respecting everybody. It doesn't mean any of that. But I have a hunger for growth and the goal. If that's my goal and that is my goal, then I have to be honest with what is required to achieve that goal. It's the same thing I tell every artist. I said, put aside everything that uh, that you think matters in terms of anything. And if we have a common goal, if that goal is at the center and we truly, truly believe in that goal, then everything we do and every effort we make must be at the service of that goal, irrespective of if at times it's contrary to what we otherwise might think. If the goal is truly the goal, then we must be subservient to it and its truths as revealed by our involvement, by our concretization, by our action, by our time. That has been my belief. I've been raised like that. Uh, And, you know, you were raised in, I think, not too dissimilar a way by the conversations we've had in the past. I believe that's why we get along and why we understand each other, because I know if I want an opinion on something and I come to you, you're going to give me the nuts and bolts. You're going to give me the, the completeness of your perspective. I might not agree with it. I might not like it, but I for sure will respect it and honor it. And... That's what I I think is lacking in so much of discourse today. An absence of vitriol and an openness to disagreement. To disagree is not to be vitriolic. To disagree is to see the weight in somebody else's opinion and say, okay, I can't accept quite everything you're saying, but I know there's been a concerted effort put in its truth. These are the things that I miss And with you, I'm very honored to, first of all, and and very thankful to you for thinking that of me. I think the same of you. I've always thought the same of you. And I think it's a commonality that we sensed in each other very early on in our communication. And there is nobody who I'd rather have this conversation that we're having today about words, about language, about uh, the weight of making words great again than with you, because it is something that you care about tremendously. And, and I do, too. And I do, too.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you for very kind words. And I have to say that I agree with you. And I think if there's anything that we agree on, absolutely. And I'm teasing you with that word. Is that The dialogue is sore missing from today's landscape. And by dialogue, I mean the dialogue that comes from the heart and that is sincere. I personally miss that greatly because in my formative years at the ruins of the Soviet Union, uh, when one system had already fallen and another one had not yet risen, there was a great intellectual freedom and that was greatly appreciated and sought after with hunger and thirst and the environment in which you may agree, you may change your mind, but you can speak freely, whatever your sincere opinion is from the heart, and you don't care about personal branding. It's just the knowledge, and the thirst of understanding the world and its knowledge for the sake of knowledge. I think it's one of the most pleasant things in the world. And I do think that the world will be would be far more beautiful if people actually knew how to experience that on a sensory level. Where even in this conversation uh, we had, well, prior to recording and during the recording, there are some things that we absolutely agree on. And there are certain things that we almost clash on and it doesn't matter Because the sincerity is there on your part and on my part. And that makes the process beautiful.
1: Exactly. And I think that's what we both care about the most, is the beauty and the meaning of dialogue.
0: And for anyone who wants to know more about Ron Teller, also known as Blondie Boy, you can do so by going to his website, which is rontellermusic.com. R-O-N-T-H-A... LERMUSIC.com. Thank you for listening to Make Language Great Again with Lena. See you soon. Bye bye.